is an European Public Service Union podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the next edition of EPSU podcast. My name is Bujan Stanislavski. I will be your host today together with Pablo Sanchez of EPSU. Hello, Pablo. Hello. Right, and our main guest and your guest today is Andreas Bilea, who is a professor of political economy at Nottingham University School of Politics and International Relations. He's also a fellow of uh, the Center for the Study of Social and Global Justice. Uh, he's an author. He recently wrote uh, the, uh, 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 recently wrote the book by the title "Fighting Fighting for Water: Resisting Privatization in Europe." a book about uh, the fight against privatization of water and water system supplies. Uh, and uh, previously he co-authored uh, the book Global Capitalism, Global War, Global Crisis. Uh, Andreas, welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, making time for us. Hi, thanks for having me. Right, so uh, let's dive straight in. And, uh, you know, you're a, uh, you're a historian uh, of historical m materialism. Uh, you spent more than two decades studying European and global social uh, movements and labor unions and recently published a book on privatization of water and water system supplies. So what prompted you to focus on this particular topic? Yeah, thanks a lot uh, for the introduction, Boyan. So my, my general interest is in the possibilities of labor movements to contribute to the resistance against neoliberal capitalism. And it was actually the then Deputy General Secretary, now General Secretary, Secretary of EPSO, Jan Willem Gudrian, who then in 2012 pointed out to me and said, Andreas, look, if you want to look at successful struggles against neoliberal restructuring, you've got to look at the struggles against water privatization. And that was really the starting point of the research project underpinning this, this book here. And so really from then onwards, I started to look at the, the struggles around the Italian water referendum in 2011, when a vast majority of the population voted against water privatization in Italy. I looked at European Citizens Initiative, Water is the Human Right in 2012-13. I looked at ongoing struggles against water privatization in Greece, in Thessaloniki, in Athens. And I also covered in the book the uh, protests and the resistance against the introduction what of... What period, what period are we talking about, like those struggles? Yeah, so Italy, the referendum was 2011, and that then stretched all the way to the struggles in Ireland between 2014 and 16 against water charges. Exactly. So a relatively modern phenomenon. A relative modern, a relatively recent phenomenon. It was very interesting to see why is it yeah, that the struggles in this particular sector have been so successful when many other struggles against privatization of postal services, transport, etc., etc., had failed. And so that was really the motivating question underpinning this book. Right, right. Uh, so if, you, if we do uh, draw some kind of lesson, uh, conclusion, something, uh, you know, important from those struggles for us activists, for union uh, uh, members, uh, for labor leaders, what would be the most important well, lesson that we can uh, learn from those, uh, those processes, those fights? Yeah. 
So one of the key reasons for why these struggles were so successful during that period was that they were based on broad alliances. And so, of course, trade unions were part of it. Yeah, it was the European Federation of Public Service Unions, EPSU, which was key to coordinate the campaign around the European Citizens Initiative. But at the same time, I think those unions which were involved in the struggles, they realized that they cannot just focus on the workplace and their own members. They also need to look at the issues in wider society. And water is one of those struggles, which of course affects the workplace. Wherever you have privatization, workers' wages and working conditions are under threat. But it also affects wider society. And trade unions, those which participated, realized we can't just focus on the workplace. We need to look at the sphere outside and cooperate with other movements. And so trade unions, together with environmental groups, together with developmental groups, together with citizens' committees, with social movements, really underpinned those struggles. And that was a key aspect for why they were so successful. Okay, Pablo, perhaps you could weigh in now and tell us something about the involvement of APSU in uh, those struggles, because I think it's something, uh, you know, perhaps even groundbreaking, the kind of reaching out to other movements, reaching out to not just the workers, the producers, those people who are on, on you know, like uh, uh, the, the, the workforce in a particular sector, but also the consumers. And this seems to be... Um, a kind of combination that's much more powerful than just the the, the workers of a, of a given uh, branch. Well, yes. Well, thank you for the invite, um, and thank you, Andreas. Uh, but I, I mean, it's difficult to stress how important this concept of the broad alliances is. Um, it's either depending on the audience. I always say it's very innovative or very old-fashioned. So, uh, because there is a little bit of both. In a way, I think um, what happened after the the onslaught uh, of the, you can say, like traditional working conditions and the acquis of the 60s in most of Western uh, Europe and the trickle down in many other countries, is that many trade union organizations with a declining rate of membership in many countries kind of withdrew to the trenches of the workplaces uh, where they are strong and they, they can defend and so on. The problem is that then you abandon uh, societal debates. Um, in, 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 the, in Spain, where I'm from, you can gather by my accent, there is um, a lot of talk by the, by the labor movement, uh, by the trade unions and, and beyond about the unpaid surplus value. So you need to also, as trade union, to talk about issues that touch the bulk majority of the population, such as public health, not just the work, as a workplace, but as the role in society, like kindergarten, um, and all, many other services. And water is the very one that has a different, uh, like, it's, it's like a crossroad of, of, of the society. Yeah? You have the resource, so it's easy to talk to environmental groups. You have that you need it for the economy, so you, 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 I mean, for society and for life. So you can actually open a debate and then um, you, it's that industrial process at the same, at the same time, you're just pumping up the houses of, of people and so on. So everyone sees that you cannot leave water to the market. This is a, a very um, easy, um, arguable uh, concept 
And then you can open a debate about why do we leave other things that look like, are not the same, but they look like, uh, like water. And that has been this, this debate, and it's actually not just a theoretical debate, it's a concrete debate in the real life of real people in many cities that they do not want, and you know, they don't want it because they have seen how actually is managed water when it's uh, controlled by the market. It's higher prices, it's lower quality, it's, 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 it's terrible for public health. And, um, and therefore, uh, it's in inverted commas, very easy to construct these alliances and, and to change the dynamic from what trade unions and social movements were uh, prior to the late 90s into a more progressive, positive and, and society changing agenda. Right. Well, you said that it's an old and a new concept, depending on which generation you're talking to. But I think uh, it, it, there, there is a groundbreaking element in it because, uh, you know, we do suffer from this problem of unity, of lack of unity, really, on the left. And that, of course, has to do, uh, you know, with trade unions a, a, as well. But I'm thinking that particularly public services are unique in a certain sense that the trade unions could actually facilitate this, right? The connection between the consumers and the producers. And you said you're from Spain, I'm from Poland on Poland and Bulgaria at the same time, on bicultural. But uh, you see, when you take the electricity, for example, right, the electricity, but we've got like maybe 10,000 workers working in, the elect in that sector, right, maybe 15,000. But then we've got like 40 million people in Poland consuming that energy, which is, you know, this is, this is where the real strength is, how, how we can, we're able to leverage, you know, the... Uh, uh, the private owners or, or, or the state who is about to privatize that. What do you think? But you need to build the alliance. You need to, I mean, uh, in that sense, electricity workers need to see that the struggle is supported in society and society, yes. I, those that actually are vulnerable consumers, <laughs> need to see that uh, the real point of strength is at the production point. So the day, and it's actually an interesting comparison if you compare particularly as, as energy prices are soaring in, in, in many European countries. I mean, we are re reaching a record in Spain, in Austria, in Belgium, in Norway. Uh, prices are just, I mean, this winter is gonna be a total disaster. And we have 20 years of liberalization of the market at the European level. And this is the proof of the pudding is that, you know, we can be producing more CO2 emissions, so there is no transition here to be, to, that is done. There's a lot of talk about reduction, but it's not done. Prices are skyrocketing, so how has the market managed properly uh, the liberalization? And we have another sector in which the prices might slightly go up, but where companies, because of social pressure, but are actually debating how do we introduce social tariffs and we make it justly? How do we implement the human right to water at the local level? Since the European Union is not really pushing for that legislation because the response of the ECI was uh, uh, timid, to say the least. Um, but how do we uh, in Cadiz, how do we in Paris, how do we in Naples ensure that no one is cut from the from the network and that everyone has a world to live and, 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 and that it has an impact, it does not have an impact environmentally. And the, the, I mean, the, the, they are the opposite. And here there, there's an element is like no liberalization in the European market, which is very important. And this needs to be seen. The link needs to be made. And here, a thing we try, 
uh, but really needs to be done at the local level by the unions to just, they need to come with a really credible possible um, uh, alternative. I mean, in many places will pass uh, through uh, public ownership, but they really need them to come out saying we need to get this uh, back into public hands and manage it, manage it in a different manner. Because this is another element. Um, when we, in the water movement, there's a lot of debates about how the public company should look like. Like shit certainly shouldn't look like, like public companies look in other sectors. We, we don't really want a publicly owned company that behaves like a multinational. We want a publicly owned company that has in its uh, statutes, Article 1, 2, or 3, uh, you know, fulfilling societal needs. And this is doable. Right. I mean, of course, you'll be in a permanent contradiction with the market, but you can advance. Uh, and, and the more we are, the easier will be for, for others. Right. That sounds, that sounds pretty optimistic. Andreas, before I, I go to you with the next question, could you briefly comment on what, uh, what, you know, what Pablo said? Yeah, I think Pablo made a whole range of uh, highly important points. And uh, he's right. It is actually in the water sector is very much leading when it comes to thinking about how can we run uh, public company in an alternative way. There are very interesting projects going on at the moment. Yeah, This uh, community in Catalonia in Spain, uh, Terraza has just established a water observatory where they experiment in ways of how to bring workers, how to bring citizens on board in running the company. Similar experiments are underway in Paris, in Grenoble also there are uh, citizens and worker representatives on a governing board, advisory board of the water company. And there's a real understanding that, as Pablo said, we can't just go back to the past. Yeah? Just because a company is run by the public doesn't mean that it's run well. And if you want to improve on the past, if you want to give a real alternative to private companies, then you've got to ensure that the running of a company is being democratized. And water is leading in that area. And the big struggle is how can we move from that to other sectors? And I think Pablo correctly pointed to energy. This is one of those sectors where we really need to come to terms with the fact that corporations make super profits while some people can no longer afford the fuel bills yeah, and experience real fuel poverty. And there needs to be a public answer to that problem. Right, right. And, you know, the question of democracy that you just brought up, I think it's uh, it's pretty crucial in terms of, of the successful mobilizations that you observed and described in your book. And, and perhaps, you know, you could tell us something about, uh, you know, well, you've spoken to a whole number of local activists, right, including organizers of such uh, successful mobilizations. So I wonder um, to what extent the question of democratizing the so and, and social control over such enterprises was uh, was part of that, those conversations that you had, and what was the most crucial and, and uh, lasting impression uh, that you got from those from those talks and, and meetups? Yeah. So in, in in discussions, I think it was especially in Italy where activists realized we can't just offer the traditional public company as alternative to private water, because very often people had been uh, dissatisfied with often rather chaotically, bureaucratically run public companies. And that's where then the notion of the commons was put into play yeah, as a way of an alternative to the private sector, but also as an alternative to the public sector, where the service is run by, by technocrats, by, by bureaucrats, 
So that's the idea that we jointly manage the water services. We jointly enjoy the water services and we jointly preserve them for the future. Now, democracy, of course, is also quite important when it comes to these broad alliances and how are decisions taken within these alliances. And it's, of course, not automatic that these broad alliances cooperate smoothly. Yeah, there's suspicions sometimes by, by uh, social movements vis-a-vis -vis trade unions, that trade unions would always want to be in charge. There are suspicions by trade unions vis-a-vis -vis social movements, but social movements just want to use their resources without actually having them as full partners. And it was quite interesting that it was in the process of the joint struggle that those activists and different groups actually came together, grew together, appreciated each other, and formed a much more common identity. And it was as a result of these struggles that Quite a few of the activists I spoke to told me, well, I started off as a trade unionist, or I started off as an environmental activist, but actually in the process, we all became water activists. Yeah, so it, and it was really as a result of this struggle that these broad alliances came together and that knowledge was produced around alternatives of how public companies can man be managed in a different way. Okay, and, and, and uh, was this the, the, the kind of the biggest impression that was uh, that, that you uh, sort of got during uh, during your observations? That, uh, is it is it that the fact that people are able to be united around a concrete and specific cause that has a broad meaning for the entire community that they they're in? Is is this the, the, the sort of the most crucial element? This is the crucial element. So they unite around a particular cause, but it's in that process when then suddenly other horizons are also opening up. And the hope is, and there's at least the potential, that one citizen see that, oh, actually our public water company is running much better. But then the idea comes, okay, why don't we move then also in the energy sector? What prevents us from doing that? Why should not local transport also be run in a different way as a commons, for example. And I think that's where the transformational potential of those successful struggles in the area of water comes from. Right. And, you know, there's so many interesting ideas. I want to go to you, Pablo. Could you please uh, tell us something about uh, what Andreas pointed out, that there is certain anxiety, perhaps, on the part of the trade unions of, like, being, you know, part of such a large um, coalition around a very important cause, but, you know, anxiety that someone, that there might be something fishy here, you know, organizations wanting to use their resources and authority in the labor movement, and so on and so forth. Is this, is this a common thing? Is this something that is, is, is to be tackled in the trade unions? Uh, is this something that really has to be worked on? Or do you rather think that it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that is just an initial phase of such, uh, such a collaboration and maybe will just wear off at, at a certain point. Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's a bit of both, but uh, clearly it also comes down to the tradition of the trade unions. There are more uh, mm -hmm. unions are close to, I mean, um, unions have been proning social dialogue and, you know, collective negotiation and partnership for over many decades and uh, say the other side of the coin to that is to abandon um, more 
grassroots struggles. Uh, now, unions that would just only do grassroots struggles would be seen as less effective and would be more political unions, so you would have a very a lower membership. So this equilibrium, that changes from country to country. Of course, when you have like different confederations coming from a political tradition, that is usually, you know, there is a more social movement one and, and, and more of a social partnership one. In countries where you have one, you also see like federations more radicals and less radicals. So it really, I mean, to put it in like very simple political science, there are more left-wing and more right-wing trade unions within the labor movement. That's uh, <laughs> that, that to the first year of uh, the university, if, if you want. Um, but the fact that, as I said, there's been this um, trying to keep uh, the, the accumulated gains of the past instead of being of reaching out. I think there is also a, a, a generational uh, change in, in another podcast. We were talking about new um, worker forms and new worker organizations coming through and many trade unions not knowing how to approach that, uh, like mm. uh, riders of, of Deliveroo and Uber and, and so on. And other unions are actually very um, open to actually collaborate, uh, get a certain amount of criticism because they didn't organize them in the first time, and then just, you know, advance with this, this criticism. At least, I mean, <clears throat> at least still at this day, even with a lower rate of, of, of density of less members, the trade unions are the broadest organizations in the vast majority of, of, of European countries. So you would have debates that exist in society. And uh, of course, it's, it's, they're not isolated from society, uh, thankfully. And... So, so that is a very contradictory image of some they do, some they don't. But we do believe that you need to reach out. You need to be generous in, in the resources that the trade union have. The resources that we do have, we also have inherited from people that did have a different approach from what you know, the immediate past has. So we need to see the history of the trade union movement as a whole and then analyze society as it changes and see those movements as a potential ally. And personally, I believe that, you know, that generosity pays off in the medium and long run, because it basically you, um, that can be misunderstood, but it's in a way of trade union and uh, trade unionize uh, some of the social movements. So it's easier to collaborate and advance on a social agenda. And we do believe that that's a very, you know, just, just, 99.9% of trade unions would believe that the social agenda is the main thing. But you can really come down to the point that it is, because the bulk majority of the population are either paid workers or they mm -hmm. are fake unemployed, uh, sorry, self-employed, or they are unemployed that would like to work. So if you basically work towards this constituency, you also need other allies and other groups and other citizen groups and so on and so forth. So, um, uh, I think it's important to have an open debate, be criticized, of course, be also, you have the right to criticize others, and we have criticized others in, in the social movements for being too narrow, for being uh, very sectarian towards trade unions, when then they could get uh, some agreements, they just do exactly the same. Um, but, you know, I think social, there is this, uh, and this is me talking very personal, this 
perception that the left always splits and it always talks a lot. But in these talks and in these divisions, we actually advance an agenda and gain society. And it's not, you know, um, we need to see where we're coming from. And for, for, for that, water has actually been a, a game changer in order to be able to have a permanent discussion with other groups that are actually real and existing and also that we folks impacted on those groups and we are, you know, in a way developing some sort of like social environmental movement, which, um, you know, um, it's a different thing from what we had like 20 years ago where you, you right. had trade unions on one side and, and NGOs uh, on the environment in, in another. And, um, you know, I think everyone has to gain from working with uh, people that want to change yeah, society. It sounds pretty optimistic in the sense that it's not only morally, politically and socially correct, it's, it also pays off for everyone that participates in these kind of coalitions, right? Because we can grow and we can uh, gain strength and so on and so forth. So let me go uh, back to you, Andreas. Uh, let's, let's talk for a while about the context, because you mentioned in the beginning that you observed those struggles. Some of them took place in 2014, 2011, 2010, and, and we're talking about a relatively recent phenomenon. So, uh, you know, it obviously has to do with the crisis of 2008, 2011, 12, like, you know, uh, that's, which, which basically had a devastating effect throughout Europe, not east, west, everywhere, like the, 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 politi uh, politi uh, the austerity po policies, the, uh, uh, the cuts, uh, the, the, the devastating, huge destruction of, of, you know, not just the economies, but also the social fabric. Like so many people fell into poverty and, and you know, I don't even want to start, uh, you know, explaining what kind of what effects it had because we could speak about that for the next two hours. But, uh, you know, let's let's talk about this context for a while, because, you know, from the point of view of those struggles, 2008 definitely accelerated or, or gave a sort of a creative premise for acceleration of uh, privatization processes in several countries. And, and I wonder if you could speak about that and also the role of the European and global institutions. I think that, that's pretty important here. The IMF, the World Bank, the ECB, uh, you know, what was their role in this process? How did they take advantage of uh, the, uh, the global crisis and, and, and how, how the whole thing ended up in this massive privatization rampage? Yes, I, I think that's a very pertinent question. And water privatization did start before the global financial crisis. Yeah, in the 1990s, it happened especially in the global south, that these big, large northern corporations came and participated in water privatization. In Italy, for example, privatization started around the late 1990s, early 2000s. However, this pressure towards privatization was really ramped up, as you say, after 2007, 2008. And I think what the global financial crisis amounted to was this kind of crisis of overaccumulation. So there was a lot of private cash sloshing around in the global financial markets, looking desperately for profitable investment opportunities. And public services including and perhaps especially also water, offered this kind of profitable investment opportunity. Because ultimately, these kind of services are backed up by the state. If something goes wrong, if suddenly the corporation tempts water, let's say, 
which supports and supplies London citizens with uh, uh, water. If they went bust because they overreached themselves or overspeculated themselves, the state would have to step in and bail out the company because a state can't just have one of its big cities no longer being supplied with water. And so that was the, the reason for why those public services, but in utilities, but in particular also, especially water, became so attractive and why the pressure for privatization was ramped up. And these global institutions and the EU institutions played a crucial role in that because they abused, I would say, the mm. Eurozone crisis by putting specifically pressure on countries such as Greece, Portugal, such as Ireland, to shift towards privatization of their utilities and here also especially including water. And of course, the, the global financial crisis also affected uh, deeply Italy. The referendum had just been won in Italy. Only a couple months later, EU top politicians wrote to the Italian government and said that they needed to do more to privatize their public services, including water. Yeah, it almost went directly against a democratic decision by the citizens of Italy. And so the European Central Bank, the IMF, the European Commission, yeah, they were part of this so-called Troika, administrating these bailout agreements. And they really used that. Yeah, they, they used the crisis in order to make countries privatize assets, which otherwise without a crisis, they wouldn't have been able to do. And so there's a very close cooperation with capitalist interests and those international organizations pushing for water privatization. Right. So we're what we're talking basically is the corporate control over over the state. That's that's what we're talking about here. And uh, I wonder this this crisis and this privatization uh, wave that occurred. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. I'm going to go to you, Pablo. Right now, I, I want to ask uh, what 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 was the reaction? What was the initial reaction in the trade unions? So how uh, how how did uh, you know the, the labor movement react to that? Well, I was very young at the time, so <laughs> um, just to go back and then to bridge to the question, um, what is such a like beautiful sector to be take over? Because most citizens in Europe, a big chunk, uh, particularly those that actually have some income, are actually connected to the network. Yeah, and they pay. Monthly by monthly depends on the country and the system, but they pay cash every month. And if you increase the price 1% or 2%, they will continue to pay. They might complain, but they will. And this is cash in hand. When the, when the financial markets were swallowing trillions of dollars, euros, yens, and, and all sorts of currency into oblivion because it was a speculative money, and they were in need of money, this was so good to basically get. Because you would just put credit as, as a so that house how you, you basically put lobby you, you put pressure on politicians you say either you give me the water or the company will go bust and then so many people will be unemployed and you're gonna have to pay so the solution is you sell uh, that so you take a big chunk of the finances of the municipality of the region from from the books so this is great for uh, austerity measures at the european level and then i will invest but the money they invest is credit money is is money that doesn't exist so it's Basically, again, speculation, 
but they then start from day one of the contract to get literally millions of euros in cash directly to the bank account. And then what happens is usually 20, 25 year contracts, there is some investment. Then when the contract is starting to reach its limit, you know, that last five, seven, eight years, they stop all sorts of investment. And then they go to the very same municipality and say, look, there is all this investment that needs to be done. If I don't get the contract again for another 25 years, you have to do it. So, and this is a very common thing that's happened in Portugal as well. So it, once you privatize, you just basically lost it and you lost the know-how and so on. So, so you, you not only lost it, you depend on them in a city. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we've seen it. We, we see that the prices go up and the, and the cities that do the titularity, as it says, they don't have any control over anything. They just don't have the capacity to do the tests. They don't have the labs anymore. And then when, one, one of the process of remunicipalization is like they realize that they don't, they basically are in the dark and that the company does whatever they want. And then some people say, we should have not allowed this. And then say, well, we actually said it 20, 20, 25 years ago. And, and when this happened, and not just in, in the period 2008, 2012, even before, um, the, the, the issue is that uh, it started to happen. And usually the first thing you try to privatize is on water. If you get to water privatization, there's so many things that have already been privatized. There's been so many anti-privatization struggles that have failed. Mm. That it's very difficult to, now you come, it's like, we're really going to stop that one and we're going to really stop taking things over and getting back into public uh, ownership when you have, like, the, the spite and the, you know, bitter taste in your mouth of having lost that struggle and these other struggle and that struggle. Just take, let's take this. They privatize everything. They're just now going to privatize electricity and so on. And when you talk to the water workers, they said, look, we are like the, uh, uh, um, and in French you say village galois, aesthetics of valleys defending and so on. But we saw the tolls privatization and a big movement and it failed. We saw um, the, the, the transport privatization and it failed. We saw the, the onslaught in health uh, system and with a lot of resistance and it failed. So it's very difficult for us. Okay, we manage it, but you know, we like in our little, you know, trying to build alliances, but there is so many people who mm -hmm. basically spend a lot of time and energy trying to stop privatization, which failed. That it's difficult to build this kind of upwards alliances. So that's, that's right. um, how, how unions do approach it. It also depends what's the state. Uh, uh, like, for instance, you take the UK, privatization went very early days. Now we are back into a public debate, or we were at, at least a few months ago, but I mean, the, the, the things do not change that quickly, where there is talk about getting, I mean, with this government, of course, there is no talk about that, but a government change could have meant that this would be taken over. And this with these debates is that you change this, this balance of, of power. So it depends in what particular moment you are of the struggle of the privatization, remunicipalization of public services, that you can actually uh, have a position or a different position or have a, a unions more able to mobilize or more able. I just go back and just finish this on Greece. Mm -hmm. the, there was a new law. And then basically change that workers with the new contract after the Troika measures will have different working conditions in all public entities. So the electricity company and so on and so forth. And there is only one um, sector in which 
all workers still have the same working conditions irrespectively of when the contract was made. And that's the water sector. And what we see okay. is people actually leaving the other sectors because you have workers working next to each other with a huge wage differential. Of course, it's the older ones, more experienced that were contracted longer. But th you have young people earning like almost half from the colleagues doing exactly the same work. And then they see the water sector and they think, well, why? And it's precisely because this privatization got stopped and they were able to negotiate very good conditions. Now, it's very difficult from one sector to expand it for the rest of the economy where there is so much pressure as there was in Greece. But it just shows what was possible with a different approach at the time of privatization. Right. Well, I guess no one said it's going to be easy, right? That's the big conclusion no, here. No, no one said that. Right, right. So if someone uh, says that, you just be aware that it's probably not true. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 correct. So, uh, Andreas, uh, to go to you now, uh, because obviously from everything that uh, you said so far and, and Pablo as well, it seems like this uh, anti-water anti privatization movement uh, seems to be sort of trend-setting uh, phenomenon. Like this is, at least for, for this to this moment in time, because Pablo mentioned that it happened in the past, but like we're talking about the current conditions, that it, 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 there, it is a trend-setting element in the, in the kind of new reality developing in, within and around the labor movement in Europe. So that seems to be a kind of way to go, like in a sense that it seems to present some kind of alternative patterns, like how to act in order to win, although it's difficult, as Pablo just pointed out, like in Greece, it, it was extremely difficult, uh, in certain sectors at least. So, uh, you know, I would like to perhaps ask you to tell us something about your future projects, because I'm sure that, you know, on the basis of the observations that you've made so far, it's, uh, it's like you're probably going to continue the work, like the scientific research, and, and, and are there any new areas that where you want to dive in and, and see whether such possibilities could be explored uh, for for struggles for progressive uh, solutions. Yeah, so what, what really fascinated me with the water project is the kind of knowledge which was generated by the activists, by the social movements in relation to how can we manage public water companies differently. And not just resisting, but actually also very constructively how do we transform the way of how we manage water? And so that's really this idea, what does a public management look like from a kind of a labor perspective? And labor understood very broadly, including trade unions, but also social movements and, and other environmental activist groups and so on. And so in that respect, then I think, especially if you look at the pandemic and the impact it has had also on the kind of so-called global free trade regime, I think, it would be interesting as a next step to investigate what would an alternative trade regime look like from a labor perspective. Yeah, an alternative trade regime which is not at the service of capital, which is not mm. at the service of maximizing profits, but which is actually in the service of people. Yeah? So that people themselves, again, democratically, can decide what should they trade, in which areas they do not trade because they first need to satisfy their own conditions. And in that area, when we come then to concepts like food sovereignty, 
food sovereignty, there are all kinds, again, of alternative ways of how we can manage. And so it's this emphasis on what would, from a labor perspective, from a worker's perspective, what would an alternative trade regime look like? Very similar to what would an alternative water management regime look like from the past project? Right. Uh, well, that's when you say about removing the profit paradigm from water, it's basically that means breaking the backbone of the free market regime. Like, right. So yeah. this is obviously a difficult task. And uh, uh, could you could you speak about your future projects? Like, do you have any con concrete and specific plans as to what are you going to examine now? What kind of movements? What kind of areas? Yes, yeah, so there, there's one uh, project which is currently being put together based on a quite a large network of academic researchers, but also activists, NGOs operating in this area of free trade. And we are going to look at uh, current free trade agreements, but not from a kind of a distance objective observer position, but through the eyes of labor movements. Yeah, that's the idea. So the first step would be what is labor movement's perspective on those free trade agreements which are currently being negotiated, especially in the UK also in the post-Brexit environment, and then also see what kind of alternatives are being generated within the labor movement, what kind of alternative ideas. And in particular, we are going to look at initiatives in the global south. So it's not just always like, oh, we Northerner need to show the people in the global south how they should organize their societies, but rather it's for us to learn from the alternatives which are being generated in the global south around trade policies and then run those past labor activists here in the global north and see what reverberates positively with our understandings in the global north and therefore could also provide the basis for a much more common perspective on what a just trade regime could look like. So that would be mm -hmm. the kind of more concrete take on in this project. Right. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you very much. This was a fascinating conversation. Good luck. Keep my, I keep my fingers crossed for your work and for your work, Pablo. Uh, and uh, I'll... Uh, uh, I, I want to thank our viewers also uh, for uh, being with us and uh, we're going to see you soon on the next edition of Absu Podcasts. Stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Bye bye.